Sadly, we know that we have lost Oklahomans to, to this virus, and we know and can anticipate that this will continue to happen. What's going to change the game and keep things moving in the right direction at this point is really individual action. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, um, but I'm just here to tell Oklahomans we are going to get through this. I'm Ben Felder with The Frontier, and this is COVID-19 in Oklahoma, a daily podcast bringing you the latest info and insight into how the coronavirus is impacting our state. Through interviews and conversations, this podcast is about context and clarity during this challenging time. Today is Friday, April 10th. On today's episode, the Frontier's Cassie McClung and I speak about the importance of demographic data from coronavirus tests, the process of getting a test at one of the state's mobile drive-through sites, and the impact school closures are having on homeless students. Early in our conversation, Cassie goes over the latest COVID-19 numbers. So we're going to go ahead and jump into that conversation now. Hello, Cassie. How's it going? It's going good. How are you doing, Ben? Good. I'm tired, but I'm good. Um, long day. It's, I, I was yeah. telling you earlier, I went out of the house for work, uh, three different stops today, which, you know, on a normal day wouldn't be that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the most in the last few weeks that I've that I've been out of the house, which was both kind of nerve wracking, but also just kind of tiring because I'm not used to traveling away from the home base so much. Right, right. Yeah, you made you made quite a few stops today, all in the name of journalism, though. So trying, <laughs> yeah, spent. but no complaining. A lot of everyone's being impacted by this. One of the spots was uh, one of the uh, the mobile testing sites in Cleveland County, and we'll get into that a little bit in terms of what I saw and kind of what that mm-hmm. process looked like. But but first, uh, Cassie, give us an update on what numbers were reported on on Thursday. Uh, some interesting takeaways, especially with uh, maybe some comments earlier this week by the governor related to these numbers. Sure. Yeah. So uh, the health department this morning reported that the state's at 1,684 known cases of COVID-19, uh, 415 hospitalizations and 80 deaths. And those numbers really haven't stopped rising since I think I'm looking at my spreadsheet now because I have a big spreadsheet of all this data uh, since at least March 19th. And I know, you know, before then, so it's just been steadily increasing yeah. for the past month or so. So after two days of seeing double digit, uh, increases in the number of deaths, we saw mm-hmm. one additional death on Thursday. Um, so an increase of 25 in hospitalizations and 160 in confirmed cases. You know, I mentioned the governor and we don't have to harp on this too much. Uh, mm-hmm. but he, he did say at a press conference a couple of days ago that he, that he was cautiously optimistic that that the, that the hospitalization rate was flattening. I didn't go into it in too many details and didn't present any data and didn't really, you know, bang the drum on that so much. So, um, you know, I'm not going to blame the guy for actually, you know, wanting to be optimistic right. about the situation right now. But like you said, we've seen the hospitalizations are, are still going up, right? Right. So, you know, kind of like we were talking about earlier, I'm not a data scientist, so there might be some kind of fancy modeling going into this that I just don't know about. But so on March 25th, there were 59 hospitalizations, and then today they're reported 415. So, you know, we've seen leaps in the hospitalizations every day. It, 
we haven't had, you know, a day with no new hospitalizations or a decrease in hospitalizations. But I will say these are cumulative. So, again, he could have data that we don't have. I, I don't know. But, you know, just looking from the cumulative hospitalizations, it does look like it's, you know, continuing to rise. Yeah. And I'm looking at this uh, this graph that the Oklahoma put out on Thursday that shows mm-hmm. uh hospitalizations by patients under investigation because there's some that are you know suspected and you know until they get those test results back they're not confirmed and then confirmed cases and then patients patients in icu the the patients under investigation that's that's dipped a little bit over the last week actually by 100 but confirmed cases and patients in icu that graph is is still kind of kind of trending up like i said i'm not knocking the governor for for what he said and he did follow that up by saying that you know his his team is still preparing for a surge in hospitalization so it's not like they're they're he's he's assuming that it's going down and, and not doing anything but uh but as of right now we're not really seeing any signs when you just look at you know graphs and just the raw numbers that this is mm-hmm. uh, you know reversing right and it, you know it takes more than one day we were talking about there only being you know one reported death today it, it takes you know, quite a few days to be able to say something's probably a trend. Yeah. So, you know, we might see a dip in confirmed cases or confirmed deaths for a few days, but, you know, the next day you could see a big rise. And I I know I've heard um, experts talk across the country, you know, in other states that their states have seen that, you know, kind of a lowering and then a sudden rise again. So it's, I think, you know, it's just going to be something that's going to have to be consistent for probably more than a few days before we can make any kind of connections with it. Yeah. And that's not to say that you can't kind of celebrate, you know, right. one day declines, like we said. Oh, two no, that's days great. Of, I'm so glad we only saw one death today. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously we'll see what the numbers look like tomorrow. But if, you know, if we see that kind of slowing, you know, that would be great. But, uh, you know, that the long term evidence there are, isn't there quite yet. So that's right. we're talking about numbers we've seen in the past. Let's talk about the future here a little bit because I know we've we've talked a lot about modeling. Um, I think it was an episode two, almost two weeks ago that mm-hmm. I was talking to you and, and was saying I, I've heard that the governor's team, which includes researchers from OSU and OU and the Department of Health, have been bringing their models together and we're trying to kind of hash it out to have one model and. We expected this to be presented early last week, and two weeks later, we we still haven't seen a model. Now, the governor has called a press conference for Friday morning on modeling, so we may have that information tomorrow. But, Cassie, for for two weeks, we really have not seen what it is the state is looking at in terms of when it's trying to determine when a possible, you know, peak might be. Right. You know, and that's so important because it kind of tells the state where to allocate resources and when to allocate resources and how much hospitals should be ramping up to prepare for that patient surge. So, you know, we know that the governor in the past has been referencing that national model um, from, I think it was Washington University that's been uh, modeling nationally and for each individual state on when they might see their peak. So, yeah, tomorrow will be interesting. I'm hoping, you know, we get more information and maybe we can find out, you know, whether these models were just completed or if the state has been depending on them for several weeks now. Is it possible that the delay in, in releasing a modeling, like you're right, they, they may they may have one behind the scenes and just haven't, you know, maybe mm-hmm. it's just a delay in reporting it. But could it be possible if there is a delay in getting one that that's due to the fact that not until this week did we have really a, a clear picture on, on how many Oklahomans were being tested because we didn't have those negatives from private labs? 
Right. Definitely. I'm glad you brought that up because, um, I was talking to someone with the governor's office, I think it was yesterday evening. And he mentioned that, you know, since the state didn't have those negative tests and since, you know, the state's also ramped testing up, it's kind of given them a clear picture of how the virus has been spreading and who's infected, um, you know, where it's spreading. So I think that was probably a big piece that was missing from their uh, analysis. Yeah. And, and and I don't know that you, you just get that information and then you're instantly able to put it in the computer and spit out some modeling. I mean, you need right. to see probably, you know, a little bit of a trend line. And, and it wasn't until just earlier this week that we started getting getting that information. But that's that's substantial. Although, on but on one hand, though, I mean, the state, you know, private labs are doing most of the testing in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. which is why it was so important to get those negatives. You know, the Department of Health uh, or the state through the Department of Health and OSU labs are have really accounted for like one fifth of the tests in the state. Now, I don't know, is that a large enough sample size? You know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, their tests are coming from county labs and coming from these these mobile testing sites, which I would imagine is a little bit of a different population than say, those who are going to a doctor's office or the hospital and getting tested, which is being sent to a private lab, wouldn't you think? Right, yeah, because you know, so many Oklahomans are uninsured. Um, you know, obviously you can get that testing for free through the state, but it does kind of make me wonder what populations are being captured and what populations aren't being captured. And I'm sure the state has those same questions. Um, I think I saw this morning that the negative tests were up to 11,000 now. And, um, you know, before we go too far away from modeling, I do want to point out because, you know, this is this situation, this pandemic is new for all of us and we're learning as we go. And it's just important to keep in mind, you know, even when we do learn about, hopefully learn about those models tomorrow, that it's not an exact science um, per se, and it's not a crystal ball, but it is a helpful tool to help policymakers make decisions. But, you know, we probably can't expect it to be right on point. Like, this is how many deaths we might see. This is how many hospitalizations. This is how many cases there are out there. Yeah. And those models will still depend on the action of residents. I mean, how well we continue mm-hmm. to follow the guidelines. And and maybe in Oklahoma, we should be a little bit more understanding of that more than other states because of just the the intense focus on weather here. Um, mm-hmm. now that's not to say that people here still don't complain when a when a TV news forecast, you know, predicts oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> rain and it doesn't or a storm and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. But we all know that we, we've been through many nights where there's a prediction of tornadoes coming through or not a prediction, but a, a possibility of tornadoes coming through mm-hmm. in the forecast. And it doesn't happen. It's it's still good to know that information to be prepared. Um, you'd rather know it than not. So, yeah, that's a good point about about the modeling. Exactly. You know, we talk about the different types of population or the different demographic of those who are getting tested at, like, say, a hospital or, or a doctor's office compared to the mobile testing sites. Um, I would imagine that if you went to a doctor's office and said that you weren't feeling well, that the doctor would be would, would still be a little judicious in giving that test. I mean, mm-hmm. if you didn't seem to have any symptoms or, or signs of it, you probably aren't going to get the test, I would think. But at these mobile testing sites, what it appears to me is that even though the state is saying, come if you've been in contact with someone or if you have some symptoms. Um, I was at a mobile testing site today in right. Cleveland County, in Norman, and they weren't doing physical checks on, on, on people. And so I don't know what condition they're coming in. Um, there were a lot of people who were driving and one of the passengers got tested. There were people where okay. there were multiple people in the car and they all got tested. 
but I would imagine there are some people who are going to this site, and I'm, I'm not criticizing this at all, who are just, mm-hmm. you know, really kind of still fearful. Just, you know, I, I just would, I, I'm going to sleep better if I know definitively if I have this or not, that are going Definitely. to these mobile testing sites. And from what I can appear, what it appeared to me, that's, that's possible. You can go get in line, go through, get the test done, and get the results in 24 to 48 hours um, is, is what it looked like to me. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, we've had, I think there was, what did you say last week, more than 70 or 70 exactly mobile testing sites across yeah. the state? Yeah, north what, of 70, yeah. Yeah, what do those look like? Are people, you know, do people just drive through and get swabbed in their car or how does that work? Yeah, I, I tweeted a picture today and I jokingly referred to it as uh, Chick-fil-A-like efficiency <laughs> and it, because it really reminded me of that. It, you know, you get into yeah. one line and then it divides into two in your cars. Someone near the end of the line gives you a form. It appeared that people were at least recording their information so they know where to send the results to and who they're testing. And then a couple cars ahead of you is when um, a a health official will come who is dressed head to toe in PPE, so the gowns, the the masks, Mm -hmm. some were wearing shields, and they will do that nasal swab with you you in the car. We've talked about it before, just that uncomfortable-looking procedure. Mm -hmm. And... um, you know, I was taking some photos. There were some other members of the media taking photos, and I was thinking, you know, I, I probably wouldn't want my photo taken. Oh when no! I've <laughs> shoved up my nose that far. But there were people who like gave a thumbs up afterwards, just kind of saying that it was oh, okay. Good. But uh, but yeah, it's just a it's a long line of cars, and you just go through, you get swabbed, and and then you're you're on your way. And I guess you're waiting to hear the results via email or or telephone. I'm I'm not sure. And and commissioner of health. Uh, of the health department, Gary Cox was there and was asked about like, you know, who's eligible. And mm-hmm. he did acknowledge that, Hey, we're, we're looking for people who've come in contact with a known case or those who okay. have symptoms, but it's, you know, we're not, you know, that's something that can't be proven. And so we're encouraging all local, you know, Oklahomans to come if they think they meet those, that criteria. Yeah. And that's great because, you know, people have been looking for that mobile testing you know, that kind of drive-through process for a long time. And I'm not sure, I know, I think some of the drive-through sites, it kind of varies, but do you, at least at that Norman location, did you say you needed a doctor's referral? I don't, no, I don't believe that's the case. No, no. Okay. Um, and that's at least based on the information we've heard from the Department of Health and from the governor. It was about a week ago that the governor mm-hmm. started saying, if you've come in contact with a known case or you think you have symptoms, just come get tested. So I, I think they are... You know, I don't think they would say everyone should come regardless right. of their situation, but I think they like the fact that more people seem to be coming. And at least in Norman, and I don't know what it looks like in maybe some rural counties, but in Norman, they were probably, I don't know, it was, probably, it was at least 60 cars, you know, deep wow. in the line. But it was moving along fairly, fairly smoothly, I thought. 60, like six zero. Yep. Yep. Car, wow. Yeah, cars in the line. So. Well, that's more than I would have thought. That's really interesting. Good. It makes me feel kind of comforted even though the process is obviously really uncomfortable to know that if I do need to get tested or if I'm worried I can you know do it for I guess the comfort of my car so yes yeah you don't you don't have to you don't have to get out of the car so you know as we see these test results come back and that's you know we we talked about the the addition of negatives from private labs and how important a piece of data that was you know another important piece of data that we're not seeing at least not yet is um is racial demographics and that's something that you're actually writing about and as people listen to this on friday that story will be up at readfrontier.org tell us a little bit about that story and kind of the importance of looking at those demographics when it comes to you know 
where these confirmed cases are and who they're impacting. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, over the past few weeks, we've been seeing the health department release more data, you know, surrounding how many people have been tested and, um, you know, just, or county by county or nursing homes too, I guess was a new one recently that we started seeing what nursing homes had cases in them. But so the health department is releasing sometime in the next few days, race and ethnicity data on COVID-19 infections. Um, but so far it's unclear how much that's going to tell us right now. Before the past week, the health department was asking for race and ethnicity on the COVID test form, but that was optional. So less than 25% of people responded to that. Mm. Yeah, but the agency recently it changed its protocol. So now as state nurses are investigating um, these COVID-19 positive patients and who they've been in contact with, you know, where they've been, now they're asking for that information again. So hopefully the state will start collecting more of that data. And um, so the reason this data is important and why it's been getting more attention the last week, you know, I think it was earlier this week, we saw a huge New York Times piece on um, this virus, you know, impacting people of color more than other groups. So, you know, like deaths, infections, and, you know, getting sicker, too. Mm -hmm. So states like Louisiana and Illinois are showing that groups of color account for a disproportionate number of deaths. What we Oklahoma could do with that data, key demographics like, you know, location, ethnicity, race, it helps epidemiologists, officials, public health officials, you know, medical experts identify which communities are most at risk. And that helps inform them where resources should be allocated. And we saw early on, you know, elderly people were identified as a high risk group. So since then, you know, states and care facilities have really kind of rallied and implemented policies designed to, you know, stop spread the disease in that group and, you know, kept a more watchful eye on it, I guess. So, you know, I, there's, there's a lot of uses for that data. And it's, it's unclear if, you know, that's the situation in a lot of states, but we really don't know if that's the situation yet in Oklahoma, because we haven't seen that data yet. I think it was a, a ProPublica story I read last week that was kind of along the same lines. It was specifically yeah. looking at Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is one of the few uh, jurisdictions that was keeping track of this data and it was showing even though Milwaukee has a, has a high percentage of, of African-American residents, it was showing mm-hmm. they were at a higher pr- uh, proportion of, of contracting this virus. One thing they said that was interesting too is that in, in urban communities where that are lower income where you may, where you may see a lot of people of color, the opportunity to social distance may not be as much of an option. Right. You know, People may not be working jobs that just allow them to stay at home. Right. So, yeah, you know, staying home is kind of a privilege. It's kind of a white collar thing right now. Um, You know, like I get to work from home. You, for the most part, get to work from home. We know people of color are more likely to earn less. You know, they're more likely to live in poverty. And, you know, we go back to some of it does connect back to those jobs where you're probably more exposed to the virus. And I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why it's important that Oklahoma knows this data 
because, you know, if groups like, you know, certain groups are being affected, you know, we need to know, well, I guess the state needs to know ways that they might be able to mitigate that. Like, do those people need more protection? Do they need, you know, different kind of care? Do they need better access to health care, you know, during this pandemic? There's just a lot of different factors to look at, like you were saying. And, you know, I, uh, um, I might be going off on a total different topic, so stop me if I am. But last year, I actually did a pretty big project on maternal health. Yeah. And um, one of those stories I focused on was women of color, particularly uh, black Oklahomans. And what I learned from that is higher prevalence of, you know, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, uh, you know, hypertension, diabetes, stuff that can make um, pregnancy higher risk. And there's also, you know, access to prenatal care. Yeah. And sometimes implicit bias from healthcare professionals. So I think a lot of that stuff carries on into this situation. You know, um, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, and diabetes all could contribute to the risk of severe illness for or death for COVID nineteen. So I think, you know, I, I just wouldn't be surprised if this national trend we're seeing we will see in Oklahoma as well. Yeah. And, and- you know, and that's and I think that that PC reference from last year is is very relevant in, in this topic that we're talking about. It's sometimes I think it's easy to to think of COVID nineteen as this as this virus that just is going to kind of randomly get people right that was just kind mm-hmm. of scattered throughout the, the city and the state. But what we're seeing when we learn about the individual cases of of someone dying or getting really sick is that it's often clustered in a specific community. Uh, you were you referred to nursing homes and kind of outbreaks there. And we've seen some cases in some uh, jails across the country where there's been some outbreaks. But then you see, I mean, I've read, you know, recently stories about a, a funeral that, you know, 24 yeah. people that attended the funeral contracted it. I mean, so it's important for us to know this information, be, you know, even beyond the demographics, kind of know where, you know, try to map out someone who has a positive case, who they may have come in contact with, what mm-hmm. kind of gathering they were at, because that's this is really kind of a clustered virus in a lot of ways when you start to learn more about the the stories behind behind those who have who have contracted it. Right. Because, you know, of how it's transmitted. Um, I saw a lot of well, I don't know if a lot of is the right word, but I've seen anecdotally some cities and states actually breaking down their confirmed cases by zip code and neighborhood. And though, you know, it doesn't show where it was spread, it does kind of show those little pockets of people who are, you know, infected with it. So I feel like, you know, that's something I know reporters in Oklahoma have been asking for for a while. But I do think that data is really helpful because like you said, it does seem to kind of happen in clusters, you know, like nursing homes, um, you know, people, I guess, areas where people might be having close contact with each other. Which goes back to why I think, you know, one of the first institutions that really shut down were schools. And even though we, mm-hmm. we haven't been seeing the same type of impact on children, although we have seen children that have had severe symptoms and, and some mm-hmm. that have died, you know, there's also adults that work at schools and these, these are kind of close knit communities. So, um, so yeah, like you said, this, this is a, it's transmittable virus. What so makes sense that we would see, you know, clusters of cases as it as it continues to grow yeah and you know speaking of children um you know you mentioned earlier that you're working on a story kind of about you know children experiencing homelessness and their families and how they're handling this 
school building shutdown and how educators are as well. So um, kind of, you know, what are you seeing with that? Yeah, so I've been, you know, I've, I've written a couple stories already in, over the last couple of weeks of just the, the challenge that distance learning is going to prevent for some for some students, whether they are, you know, dealing with special needs or they, you know, rely on a lot of the social services that schools provide, and now they're not going to have that because the school buildings are closed. But one one student population I was just really interested in were, were those that are classified as homeless or those that are dealing with housing instability. So the mm -hmm. majority of, of students in Oklahoma that are considered homeless are their families are living with other families or they might be at a motel. The, and some are at a shelter, but that's not necessarily the majority of cases. But these are these are families that even if they're in an apartment that, you know, they probably haven't been there for even a year. And and there's a lot of there's a lot of high mobility there. And so I was really curious how this was going to impact that student population. So I started by just kind of oh. trying to contact a lot of these families. A few things really stuck out to me. One was I was surprised and impressed with how many schools seem to be doing a good job of getting technology to these households. We've talked a mm -hmm. lot about the digital divide with distance learning. Some school districts seem to be really focused on online lessons and Zoom meetings with teachers. But um, in Oklahoma City, in Putnam City, a couple of schools I looked at, Positive Tomorrows, which is a school for homeless kids here in mm -hmm. Oklahoma City, seem to be doing a good job of getting devices to families or at the very least getting internet connection. And so my first thought was like, well, that's great. That's really solving a huge problem. And it is. But then the next challenge is, you know, I was talking to a mother who who was a nonprofit, helped her get a laptop for her kindergarten son, was telling me that, you know, this is the first computer I've ever had. I don't know wow. what to do with it. Like, I don't I don't know how to use it. And then when you, you know, you think about working with a computer for you and I, that's comes as second nature. But, you know, dealing with logins and usernames and passwords and trying to get on the sites that the schools are recommending and. So there still are a lot of challenges there. And I think for a lot of these families, they feel isolated and alone. And already is probably the case in terms of how they feel given their situation, but especially now. Mm -hmm. And not to say that the schools aren't doing everything that they can or, you know, this is a tough situation for everyone and, and schools are trying to make the best of it. But, but yeah, that's been an interesting issue is just kind of seeing how families that have a lack of housing stability are handling this. But one right. piece of it is we just don't know because as schools are trying to reach back out to students and connect with them and give them assignments and stuff, uh, you know, families that are on the move a lot, those, the addresses and phone numbers change. Mm -hmm. uh, so it can kind of make it hard to connect with these kids. In in Oklahoma City, as of yesterday, so Wednesday, there were 6,551 students who the district had not yet been able to reach. You know, the school district serves about 40,000 kids. So a good chunk of kids were still kind of off the grid, so to speak. And okay. the, the district actually provided me with some data that they've been collecting that uh, as teachers reach out to these these households, they have this kind of questionnaire. And I know this because my kid goes to an Oklahoma City school and mm -hmm. his teacher called and, and my wife kind of gave the answers to some of this. But here's just some interesting data that they found. So... Um, High-speed internet. So for elementary kids in Oklahoma City, just 64% have access to high-speed oh, wow. high-speed internet devices. So 78% have access to some kind of smartphone at their home. So, you okay. know, most, a lot. Um, yeah. Just 69% in high school have access to a cell phone with a, with a data plan. Just 41% of elementary students come from a household that has a computer with a keyboard. Oh, wow. 
wow. and it's 43% in high school. So, yeah, you know, this, we talk about how important of a tool the computer is. It's, it's not something that a lot of these, a lot of families, at least in Oklahoma city have regular access to. And then my next thought mm-hmm. was like, well, maybe they have a lot of, there's a lot of tablet use, you know, iPads and stuff like that. 26% of high school students come from a household that has a tablet. Okay. Um, so there is a pretty big digital divide at home when it comes, at least here in Oklahoma City, and I'd mm-hmm. imagine this, the same is true in Tulsa and, and many other communities, um, which is a challenge as, as families are now doing school essentially at, at home. Right, yeah. You know, some of those numbers kind of surprised me a little bit. And I guess, you know, computers and tablets are kind of a luxury. Um, you mentioned you had visited with some families. How are, how are they doing? How are they handling this? Well, some of the families I spoke with, um, were, you know, we're trying to make the best of it, obviously. I, I talked to a, a mom of a kindergarten student at Positive Tomorrows, which is a, which is a school for, for homeless kids here in Oklahoma City. And she is now she her she was provided with a, a Cox Internet so that she would have some connectivity at her house for her son. Okay. And, uh, you know, the thing she said to me when I talked to her on the phone last week is she said there's the routers over there in, in the box. I don't even know. She didn't even call it a router. She's just like there's a Cox box in the corner and I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with it. So, yeah, um, some officials with Positive Tomorrows have gone and helped her set it up. But until then, you know, she had a, a smartphone and her her son's teacher was actually posting videos of herself reading and kind of singing the the song that they sing at the beginning of class and going over some lessons. And the mom was just talking about kind of how excited her kid was just to see his, his teacher's face and kind of see her talking. And so, you know, I don't know how many, you know, worksheets and lesson plans kids are going to get through, but for a Mm -hmm. lot of them, I think the most important thing is, you know, kind of having that connection again with their, with their teacher. Yeah, definitely. That's kind of that's kind of sweet. Um, so I don't know how much you've gotten to actually talk to the kids, but do they seem like, you know, they miss school? They miss, I guess, being in that environment? Yeah. I mean, and a lot of the kids I've happened to speak with are, are younger, kindergarten, first, second grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, school's a big time at, at that age. I mean, that's and it's a routine as well. Yeah. And for a lot of these kids that are coming from unstable households, the school offers some stability and some normalcy. One student I talked to who's a junior in high school at Putnam City North, she has a single mother and three younger siblings, and and she is having to kind of take on the lead of helping her younger siblings with their lesson plans. Mm-hmm. And she told me that, I've, that she had to go watch uh, YouTube videos on how to teach some fifth grade math concepts because she's like, I don't remember that. Oh, <laughs> well, wow. I don't remember how to you know, I don't know how to teach it. Yeah, I probably wouldn't either. (laughs) Are different. So it's, you know, it is a challenge. And it's, I, there's, I don't know if you've seen this on social media, but it seems like for a while, there's been this kind of these two factions of parents who think that you need to have like this really detailed schedule for your kid at home. And, and they're sharing it on social media. Here's what we're doing by the hour. And then there, there seems to be the other extreme of like, you know, no, just let the kid go like this. You know, you don't need to feel the pressure mm-hmm. of teaching your kid. And, and there's probably merit to both. Right. But I feel right. like that's a luxury conversation to have in a household where you know that your kid is going to be OK. You know, I mean, I'm worried about my yeah. kid and a, a, a academic slide, I guess, a little bit. But I'm not that worried. I mean, he's a, a, a bright kid in an affluent household. Mm-hmm. He's, he's going to be OK. But 
you know, speaking with the principal of Positive Tomorrows, she said, you know, I've, we've had kids who come back after spring break and, you know, a kindergarten forgets to l- how to write his name. I mean, that, that oh, slide yeah. is real. And so now you're going to tell me these kids are going to be out for months. So it's, I guess my biggest takeaway was that luxury of just saying, hey, just kind of enjoy the break and don't worry too much. It's kind of a luxury for those households that know the kid is probably going to be okay going four or five months without a rigorous, you know, rigorous teaching. Uh, it's That's not a the long case time. For other kids. Yeah. If, if we're yeah. back in school in August and September, so we'll, we'll see. Right. I mean, I feel like that's a lot for, you know, parents who have to work too, you yeah. know, their kid, you know, not having that place to go every day. Well, uh, Cassie, thanks for your time. Uh, thanks for the information. And we'll, uh, we'll look for that story um, that you've got coming out on the, on readfrontier.org. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. You too. All right. Bye. That's going to do it for today's episode. You can find complete COVID-19 coverage at readfrontier.org. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. Stay safe and healthy. I'll be back with you on Saturday.